Hi, this is Noam Pikelny, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Bluegrass Jam Along interview. This week, uh, my guest is Noam Pikelny, who's banjo player in Punch Brothers, but is also part of a fantastic new group called Mighty Poplar um, that pulls together some just great players and singers that you will know and love already uh, but this is a really exciting project and I'm not going to chat much about it now I'm going to let Noam tell you all about it in a sec um, don't forget there's a weekly bluegrass briefing episode on the podcast now sort of news new releases and general fun stuff from around the world of bluegrass just a quick 10-15 minute listen every Monday don't forget to check those out and as always sign up for the mailing list if you want updates on when new stuff's out there's a button on the homepage. Um, at the bottom of the website there's also going to be a link in the show notes here you'll find it in my bio on instagram stuff like that but yeah come and sign up and i can send you updates when there's new stuff but that's it here is my chat with noam so my guest on bluegrass jam along this week is noam pakalny who a lot of you will know from punch brothers a lot of you will know from his fantastic solo albums um but he's not here to talk about those things today and he's also not here to talk about his two ibma blue uh, bluegrass banjo player banjo player of the year awards i don't um, want to talk about only one of those awards yeah, we're here to talk about this one specific one of those awards. Uh, what he's actually here to talk about is a new band called Mighty Poplar. Um, Noam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Which which year's award do you want to talk about particularly? Oh, gosh. You know, it's hard to narrow them down. I can't really remember. If, maybe we could just go go down all of the accolades I've gotten, maybe starting in junior high, and then we can choose after that. I don't really want to, you know, uh, just dwell on the wards but maybe if we could devote the first 20 minutes to just going down the list that would be great we'll turn this into two episodes we'll do an awards episode and a mighty popular episode and release them at the same time let's do <laughs> let's do three just just so we have some extra time so we don't have to rush it i mean you're bound to win some awards this record it's a brilliant record i've been listening to it for the past couple of days um and i would love to chat about how it came together because it's a really interesting it's a really interesting band. Would you mind, just for people who don't know, running through who is in this band for us? For sure. Um, so I'm playing banjo on this, uh, this in this new project, this new band. Chris Eldridge, Critter Eldridge, uh, who everyone probably knows from uh, Punch Brothers, also plays with Julian Lodge. He's playing guitar uh, and doing some singing. Andrew Marlin is kind of the lead singer of this group uh, from Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. Greg Garrison on bass, who Critter and I made a lot of music with about 15 years ago. Oh my gosh, it's been a long time. Um, he was the original bass player in Punch Brothers, and I knew him from before that with uh, uh, Through Leftover Salmon, which we both played in together back in the day. And on fiddle, we have Alex Hargraves, who uh, is just ridiculously good. That's all I'll say. I mean, he is. And... I think that the the thing that fascinated me most reading about this record is that you'd never actually played in a room together before you went and sat to record this record. You knew each other, you jammed together, but this was the first time you'd actually sat and consciously made music together. That's true. Um, there had been little pairings within this group where um, we had the opportunity to, to just play informally, but never had the five of us um, been in the same room uh, together. So, you know, Critter and I have made a lot of music over the years. You know, we played with Greg back in the day. And um, I think each one of us had these kind of uh, individual experiences at festivals, backstage, you know, uh, jam sessions, um, impromptu gatherings. I had played with 
Andrew Marlin, some backstage at Telluride or sorry, in a jam, late night jam at Telluride over the years have run into Alex Hargaves left and right, um, getting to play at festivals and, you know, people's picking parties. And so, um, there were no strangers in this, in this group. Everyone had, had been connected to, uh, everybody else, um, through some path. But as far as the aggregate, the five of us together, we had never been in the same room until we finally arrived in Nashville to make this, um, fairly premeditated recording given, uh, the timing of when it happened. Yeah. You recorded this so pretty much as soon as you could after COVID, I guess. Well, it was actually in the, we were all in the thick of it. Um, this record, we've been sitting on it now for, um, over two years. It'll, it'll be three years this fall, which is crazy. Um, but we, we recorded this in fall of 2020, uh, in October of 2020. Um, we had discussed the idea of this project for maybe a year or a year and a half prior. And then kind of everything went out the window, um, once the pandemic hit. And, uh, it, for a while, it didn't even seem possible or feasible to, for people to travel, uh, let alone gather in a, in a studio and, you know, sing without masks on. But this wasn't, you know, the, the origins of this is, um, it really wasn't a pandemic record. I don't think of it as a pandemic record. It was just, it happened to get recorded during that time. So there was an extra element of, um, I think excitement or ad adrenaline to gather with everybody in October of 2020, because we had been so far from being on stage or being in studios recording albums. And I, I think for everyone in this band, um, this was really the first thing that anybody did, uh, since everything started shutting down and, and, March of 2020. Um, and, uh, so we had been plotting to do this and finally we figured, okay, well, let, let's try this. We'll take away every precaution we can and let's just, let's gather in Nashville and, and do this. And so I think if you remove the context of what was going on in the world from this, um, project, it still would have been extremely exciting. And I think the adrenaline would have been there, um, to, to get these, five folks in a room to make music. Um, but I think, uh, when you put that context back in, it was even, it was even more heightened. Um, I think we were all, um, really yearning to, to play bluegrass, you know, this kind of, um, I, I hate using terms like, you know, real deal bluegrass or real bluegrass, because that's, you know, everyone has a different definition, uh, of, what that means. And that's totally fine. I don't think it is, uh, you know, the construct of genre is, is somewhat obsolete at this point, but I think in kind of in our heart of hearts, bluegrass is what everybody in this band kind of grew up on and is kind of closest to, we keep kind of closest to our chest, even though it's not the, um, the primary focus of our full-time pursuits, whether it's punch brothers or, um, watch house or leftover salmon. I think there was this, uh, sense that every, each one of us individually, uh, was overdue to kind of get back into this music that, uh, we, we hold so dear. And as this came into focus, it was clear that this was going to be a bluegrass record. We, we discussed in advance kind of the, the validity and the, um, righteousness of the bluegrass album band records, other other um other bands that were kind of 
um, not full-time bands that would, would get together to, to celebrate and explore the more traditional music that influenced everything else they did, whether it's bluegrass album band, olden in the way, um, bands like that, that, uh, I think really left their mark despite the fact that they weren't full-time bands that were on the road touring all the time. And it was almost a way of kind of having this homecoming, um, to the music that we hold most dear. And I think that's really what the feeling was when we got into the studio. Um, when we sat down, um, we were in a remote area out in the woods outside of Nashville. And it was just the five of us with Sean Sullivan engineering. And it felt like coming home from the holidays, even though that, you know, the, this was kind of the first time all five of us were in the same room together. It, 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 it there was this sense of familiarity and a reunion element to get to sit down and and play some bluegrass and um i i don't think it's worth really kind of dwelling on what the definition of bluegrass is but you know i personally feel like this is you know uh part and parcel a, a real you know bluegrass project and it was the the closest thing um you know, by far this in, in the uh, record I made about 10 years ago, um, called Noam Pekelny plays Kenny Baker plays Bill Monroe. These are by far the most, um, kind of, uh, bluegrass oriented projects. And I really, um, kind of was hungry to do that again after nearly a decade, um, uh, away from, from the, the Kenny Baker project. But there's, this is also patently different from that record because the Kenny Baker project I made was, entirely instrumental and this mighty poplar is this record um all but two songs uh, all but two tracks are songs we only have two instrumentals in this and so it's largely um oriented around songs and story songs and andrew is really kind of at the um at the helm as the lead singer in uh on this record except for two songs where critter sang lead um so it's in some ways it's it's my return to bluegrass after 10 years, but it's my first time really getting to make a, a bluegrass record that's song oriented. And so for me, this was, while it felt casual and that there was no pressure, nobody knew that we were doing this. It was, you know, um, this cozy studio and it was, it was just felt easy. It was like falling off of a log while, while all of that was true, this felt like a real opportunity for me um, as a musician to get to play, uh, bluegrass with a singer like, uh, Andrew, um, my, as far as my opportunities to, to play bluegrass vocal, you know, vocal bluegrass music over the years, it's been few and far between. It's always been rewarding to throw in a, um, you know, 99 years into a punch Brothers set or, um, um, you know, doing Rose of Old Kentucky back with, you know, John Cowan when I was in his band. It's not something that I've never, never done. I, I've done it quite a bit, but never as the central focus of a project. And so this for me felt like this is, um, it's, it was something I took really seriously. And I, I didn't, I tried to not take for granted the opportunity to, to record with a singer like Andrew. And that's really interesting. That sort of song focus, because like those, those bluegrass album band records, they almost like for the world of bluegrass, they almost fulfill the function of like the Ella Fitzgerald Gershwin songbook and those kind of albums mm -hmm. do in the world of jazz. They're yeah. collections of just the greatest source material performed by the best people of their time. And that, um, that I think bluegrass, sometimes the song can just be a vehicle for 
musicianship and instrumental playing. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you hear the song put right up front and sung and delivered and, you know, full of intent, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think that's what we we strive for. I think the music that um, I think we always strive for that, whether you achieve it or not, um, that's for other people to to determine. But I think those types of performances and those recordings are the ones that um, have the most staying power um, because uh, it, del- it delivers a narrative and an emotional response from the listener. And I, I think, um, you know, f- for me, Bluegrass Album Band, the Bluegrass Album Band was, was uh, the first opportunity to hear some of the first generation bluegrass music. And so like I, I heard bluegrass album band interpret some of the flat and scruggs material or bill monroe material before i actually heard the the source recording that they were inspired by and i think that's a, a a cool um progression over the years of you know those guys were you know two or you know bluegrass album band those guys were maybe just one generation or possibly two generations removed from um the original pioneers of bluegrass and so they were um, they were that much more connected and, you know, fast forward to what we're working on now or what we're doing. We're, we're that much, you know, we're, we're, we're that far removed. We're further removed from, um, the original kind of pioneer, uh, pioneer generation of, of bluegrass music. And so we've been exposed, uh, to all these other interpretations of, of bluegrass. And I think that informs who we are and, you know, exposed to all other kinds of music as well. And so it became clear to us when we were scheming to do this record that we could do something like this in the spirit of the Bluegrass Album Band. But, you know, in 2020, when we recorded this, the same would be true today. There have been so many um, interpretations of Blue Ridge Cabin Home or Your Love is Like a Flower that we we, we thought it would be more... Um, compelling and i think more honest to who we are if we don't try to just now throw our hat in the ring and say okay now we're going to do some of those exact same songs that we could do this in the spirit of you know a project like the bluegrass album band but we really should find um more quote-unquote obscure material that's not uh you know been interpreted or covered uh dozens of times over the years or you know hundreds of times and so we set out to um to find material that would kind of would hold up as far as the quality, but hopefully be something that um, would uh, be a revelation to listeners of, you know, to find material that maybe people had never heard before, um, or if they had heard it before, never in this kind of five piece bluegrass band context. So those were the marching orders. And, you know, uh, almost immediately Andrew was like, well, I have, you know, uh, 17 songs <laughs> like that. Like I could, let's do it tomorrow. I'm ready. Let's make, let's make a double album. And so, that was one of the beautiful things about this is that Andrew had been collecting and curating uh, songs um, for so many years, um, things that, you know, he could call out in a jam. And so he immediately had this, this list of, of uh, really wonderful uh, songs to pitch to us. And we just kind of went down and chimed in and um, talked about instrumentals that we could um, kind of bookend the record with or you know, to have an instrumental on side A and side B um, of the record. And 
uh, talked about how to re we could rearrange some of these songs or reharmonize some of these songs to to make them our own. And so it actually kind of came together pretty quickly once we gave ourselves marching orders. It was like, okay, uh, here's here are the tunes that we can uh, you know pull from immediately. And uh, it was I think Andrew got you know this was a, a an opportunity that felt so natural for him. These are songs he'd been collecting. I think if he I think he thinks of himself as a a songwriter and a song collector in addition to being a um, profoundly excellent mandolin player. Um, but this was kind of this perfect moment for him because he had been collecting this material and here were four other guys eager to play it and, and to help arrange it and kind of make it uh, somewhat proprietary for everybody. And so um, that part of it was uh incredibly organic and and easy and i think we we took an approach in the lead up to the record of thinking about the sequence of the album um how um what the overarching concept was because there was this sense of like we have one shot to do this um we're gonna you know cross our fingers and it felt like we were you know about to commit a crime or something to all travel and, and get in a a studio together. Um, but there wasn't this sense of like, well, let's just go record for two or three days and see what happens. And, you know, we could always get, get together again or search for more material or re-record some of the stuff. There was a sense that this is our, our one shot. Um, and so let's go into the studio knowing essentially we have a record. If we record these songs, we have a record, we know what order they could potentially be in even. And so we tried to do our homework going in and, um, when we got there, it just, you know, um, it had the, it felt like it had the, um, the comfort of a family reunion going home for the holidays, the excitement of this, um, of a, uh, of an impromptu jam either backstage or on a campfire, but also this opportunity to take it to the next level. Like oftentimes in a jam, you have that raw energy and excitement, but uh, you don't have, the, you know, you're not coming up with an, uh, an arrangement, uh, uh, anything more than it being on the fly. You know, when you're sitting around playing in a jam, you're essentially looking at each other, making eye contact, nodding um, to each other as far as when someone can take a solo. And it, it's usually, you know, kind of fairly circular. that Everybody gets a chance to play. Um, and if if people want to jump in and try to play a harmony, they could, you know, try, try that at the last minute or play unison part. Um, we had this opportunity to, to, try to capture that uh lightning in a bottle but also talk about in advance of like okay so we're doing this uh gray eagle fill tune um that alex brought in um that we kind of used joe green's um uh recording of this that has jd crow on this record it's a really great i think it's a, a county county record um from maybe the 70s I, I wish i knew more details of it. it's a record i had never heard until um uh alex uh, pitched this tune to us, which was another cool element of that. Just in the preparation of this record, we were kind of turning each other on to, to different music and influences. And, and so we had this opportunity to use that as the template for, for Gray Eagle. Um, but, you know, since we were talking about this, you know, a month in advance of getting together, I was able to go and, you know, learn Gray Eagle kind of with the same type of approach as how I played the arranged all the music on the Kenny Baker uh, project I did, like try to get really inside every intricate little detail so that when you get to the studio studio, we could double things together. We could play harmony. I could play a call and response type of thing. You know, 
the those types of things would have never happened in a in a in a jam session if Alex just called that out. I wouldn't, you know, unless I had happened to have studied that song and learned all those parts. Um, and so we we tried to embrace kind of both sides of that of like let's just capture something like this raw, but let's all get inside this material in advance and while we're there that we can come up with thoughtful arrangements. Yeah, and that's really interesting because you're sort of saying about a jam is that just sort of lightning in a bottle thing, but a jam is always meant to be a moment that is there, then it's gone, and that's the joy of it. And Mm -hmm. when you know you're recording it, people are going to hopefully be listening to this for, for years to come. The pressure can lead to taking that fun out of it and to and it's, there's a there's a beautiful quote um in the some of the written material i got before this um where chris eldridge says it didn't take work other than the work and effort we've put in the rest of our lives and that mm-hmm. idea that you you study you work you get your chops down you think about all this stuff that you just turn up and let the mm-hmm. magic happen and the times when that does are you know that's that's fascinating yeah it's an in- interesting point um critter makes there because um there i don't think it's uh there it's never invalid to show up for a record or a project that um does require a lot of work and effort and slaving um and it's just a completely different approach and um the results of that can be incredibly rewarding but it's it's a, a different process and you know and so the the contrast between what happened uh, on this record and um, some of the Punch Brothers records uh, is um, pretty strong, uh, you know, fairly drastic, different process. You know, if you think of like the, the, the time and approach um, that went into like Punch Brothers blind, leaving the blind, that was a getting, you know, when we arrived to, to, to start un- unwrapping and unraveling this, um, this piece that Chris Thiele wrote, you know, that was essentially you know, like showing up for a new job and having, you know, taking, um, needing like years of training, like a couple years of training to learn how to do this new task, to learn how to communicate with your coworkers and to, uh, um, essentially un- learn how to understand what this, uh, piece of art you're about to, you know, communicate to the world to learn how, you know, to learn how it works. And, while we, everyone in that band had, you know, had the chops that got us to the point that we could, um, get together, you know, and commune to, to, to dive into a project like that, the, it was work and it was, we were all put, you know, it was entirely beyond, um, all of our abilities with maybe the exception of Chris when we first, you know, got together. And so I wouldn't be the musician I am today if it if it um wasn't for those experiences and that process um of playing with Punch Brothers and I, and I I really do think my voice as a banjo player regardless of whether I'm playing something that's you know modern that is completely disconnected from bluegrass that you can't even f- see the the trail of breadcrumbs from from bluegrass music whether it's something like that that's far out that I'm doing with with punch or something that's really kind of um, down the pike, like this pr- project or the Kenny Baker project, my voice as a banjo player and my approach to playing the instrument is completely defined um, by my experience with punch brothers and that the, the my abilities on the instrument um, to interpret something like gray Eagle 
uh, on this album and play Great Eagle kind of the way I play it on this record, which is, um, you know, similar to the manner how I, I would arrange something on the Kenny Baker record. I wouldn't have that uh, toolbox. I wouldn't have that approach if it wasn't for um, the collaboration with Punch Brothers, if it wasn't for Chris Thiele, you know, right out of the gate saying, okay, so you have all these notes on the banjo. I wrote this thing. I know you technically have these notes. Figure out a way to play it because this is what I'm hearing in my head. I need you to do this. And I'm just like, uh, oh, all right, well, um, how much time do we have before we're getting together in New York? And, and so the, it's an interesting thing. Like I, I don't, I think some people like to, um, be, uh, very stubborn or strict in that, um, music is only good if it requires suffering and kind of that kind of sweating over your project and this continual refining. I think there are people who fall into that camp. And then there are people who fall into the camp that music can't be good if it doesn't come naturally. And that if there, if it's not like, if it's not this easy, um, carefree experience, then it's, you know, not true to, um, who you really are. And I, I find fault with both of those, um, definitions of of you know where good music comes from and not definitions but you know I, I feel like those arguments are silly because the best music has elements of 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 both of those things and i think when those two things meet in the middle that's really where um uh some ama amazing things can happen and so this project with mighty poplar was a nice contrast um from kind of the process uh other processes that have you know been involved with um uh, where it was kind of, you know, a heavier lift. This felt like, um, uh, just, it felt like coming home. It felt like getting to, uh, see friends and family and, um, just kind of focus on, uh, the music that inspired me most, um, early on. And it felt like an opportunity to just kind of celebrate, um, the this music bluegrass music which has you know really changed my life i can't imagine you know who i'd be or where i'd live or who i'd be married to or you know who my family is like the this playing bluegrass falling in love with bluegrass and the banjo uh was the defining um moment uh of my life and so to come back to this uh and a project like this is uh feels like a joy, but it also feels like a responsibility, um, you know, to kind of take it seriously, um, come up with, you know, thoughtful arrangements, choose the material wisely, um, because as, as organic and casual as this record was, it's like, I haven't done anything close to this in 10 years and I've never really gotten to play, um, bluegrass, uh, like make a bluegrass songs record. And so it, it felt, it was this uh, duality of it fe feeling so easy and casual or inorganic, but then on the other side of the the coin of feeling like this is this is a big deal for me. I like I'm taking this really seriously. We don't want to screw it up, and it came together so quickly in the studio. It felt so natural uh, recording this stuff. Everything that came after the pro uh, after the actual recording, of the studio, the mixing and the mastering, all that stuff was so incredibly tedious, not because it was a challenge or we couldn't figure out how to get it sounding right, but there was this uh, sense kind of universally within the band of like, well, we, you know, we don't want to screw this up. We can't screw this up. Are we sure we like the panning? 
like, you know, we, we did, we left the studio so proud of what we did and like, it felt so great. We thought like we, that we have this responsibility not to somehow mess with this, um, after the fact mixing or mastering. And, and that combined with the fact that we were still in, in a pandemic, um, it felt like there was no, uh, immediate pressure to get this record out because we can't go on tour to, um, go support it. Everyone's still at home. And so we just kind of got into this, uh, very, uh, snail's pace, um, like approach to, to finishing the record. And, you know, finally we realized, okay, it's been over two years. <laughs> We're the only people enjoying this record. Like <laughs> we, we, did we make this record for the five of, uh, for the five of us and our you know family members, or like, do we, do we want people to ever hear this? Um, and so we finally got over ourselves and said, you know, I, the mix is fine. You know, we could have released it the day after we recorded it. Honestly, like the, the rough mixes we left from the studio still hold up. You could, you could make an argument. We should have just, you know, let it out, uploaded it to, you know, Spotify and YouTube or wherever, you know, from the studio as we were, you know, taking a coffee break, um, just in real time. Um, and so, uh, we finally got over ourselves, got the record done and finally found a window to, um, to go on tour, which is happening, uh, in May and then again in September. Um, so that's kind of how we, how we, what brought us to, to this moment. And, uh, I, I just kind of find it so interesting that it, something that feels so easy and so casual then became this, uh, uh, kind of game of like making sure that we didn't screw anything up because there was no, there was no worry like that in the studio, but we, 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 we finally got over ourselves and got it done. Thank God. Yeah. And it's really, it's really interesting to sort of talking about that as a sort of the song choices you were saying about, you sort of started off by saying that is pointless defining bluegrass in this context. And I think that's one of the things that I love about this record and that I love about so many records, but there's this, this history from, like bluegrass and pre-bluegrass from AP Carter wandering around collecting songs to mm -hmm. Tony Rice bringing things in from outside to Doc Watson singing whatever the hell Doc Watson wanted to sing. Or something mm -hmm. like Del McCurry who brings in a Richard Thompson song when it right. becomes bluegrass because he's doing it. And that, um, that type of song, I like that kind of song selection where it's not trying to define the project by the material. It's trying to take the material and give it a, you know, its own thing. And there's tracks on here, you know, there's old tracks, there's Grey Eagle for a start, but there's things like Little Joe and Blackjack Davey, but there's much more recent stuff. There's a bit of Bob Dylan on there. There's some Leonard Cohen. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a, it's not a disparate mix of stuff, but it's quite a wide mix of stuff. And yet it all feels of the same piece. Yeah. I, I think we, we wanted there to be, uh, you know, a, a narrative to the record. And I think we chose songs that, um, where the narratives and the stories didn't feel like uh, they were fighting with the other material on this record. And I think that I credit Andrew for that. And because this was not like, this is not the end of his list. I think he, he was keeping in mind when he was pitching the material, he was, he was cognizant of what else he had already pitched and would this, would this fit. And I, one of the first things um, he sent uh, even before we were going to um, make this record because Andrew and I actually had a duo tour um, booked and on sale for um, in, in May of 2020. And so in 2019, Andrew and I were passing 
some material back and forth and we were actually writing some tunes um together to to do on this this duo tour and he sent the um the leonard cohen story of isaac song and it was just kind of it hit me like a ton of bricks hearing him uh interpret that and when we reconvened to make this record he said you know we have to do that story of isaac song that you pitched last year for the duo thing that, that needs to be on this record and um he's uh you know andrew andrew's a, a really um special um artist i think he he he's the type of guy that when he sings it's just it's not labored whatsoever it's it feels very honest and so the way he delivers songs i think um is really inviting to the um the musicians who play around him play with him you know and i i, I think it's like I, i'm pretty sure it was jd crow i might be conflating this paraphrased quote with some other banjo player but i remember reading in i think the masters of the five string banjo book that you know for a for a bluegrass banjo player like it's really the highest calling is to play with a great singer um and i think there's the way andrew delivers um the lyrics there's a real lack of of kind of artifice or ornamentation um it's very plaintive um, and direct, which I think is really serves the, the stories he's telling and the characters, um, that are, you know, within these songs telling their story, but it's also like a, um, uh, this incredible on-ramp for, um, the supporting musicians to help tell that story. Um, I think if, 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 in certain situations, like the way a song is delivered by the singer, if it, it if it's um, maybe not as direct, if well, I wouldn't say not as direct. I think if the 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 directness of how Andrew delivered this, I felt like it was really inviting to me to to help um, fill in the, this picture, to help paint this picture um, in a way. Like he creates room, um, I, I, he creates room for the listener to kind of. Uh, take the take the words in and process it but he also creates room for the band to to kind of help lift him up that the it's i know it's it seems a little counterintuitive to think like i i, I the word isn't busy because like, like uh, there are i can't think of singers that are busy but there's this sense of space um uh when he's singing um that i think is really inviting to me as a musician that i feel like it's not like he he's just begging for me to like all of a sudden interject and be and for me to be like hey listen to me i'm playing you know banjo backup right now i think that's you know the opposite of what i'm tr i'm not trying to detract from the lyric but just like trying to help tell tell the story um help him tell the story and the that feels really um natural with him and so that that was a something that felt that is can still when we play together is really rewarding playing with him um that it's very in uh he i i think in the same way that a listener is drawn in to hearing you know the the story when he's singing he there's a similar thing going on that he draws in the musicians um that are playing with him to really just kind of 
help in a, a cohesive way to kind of paint this picture and make it more three-dimensional. And I think that's the whole point of collaboration is to, um, to make something more three-dimensional, to shine a new light on something, to, um, heighten the emotional impact of, of a song. And that's, uh, it's, that's a really rewarding thing to get to do with Andrew. And that's one of the things I enjoyed most about the record actually was the singing. And, and it is hearing you say that. Oh, well, you know, that kind of hurts my feelings. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about your awards later. It's all right. It'll, it'll be about you again in a minute. Um, I can't I just, believe you said that. Maybe you should have called Andrew. No, I did say one of the things. Um, but it's just that it's exactly what you were talking about. It's that thing of like some singers, it's like the difference between seeing a play in a theater where everything's aimed at the back row and it projects mm -hmm. and it comes over your head and it gets there and seeing something more intimate that he has a style of singing that makes you lean into it a bit. Mm -hmm. You lean into listen rather than it just coming to your ears. It invites you to step towards it a bit. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's always a joyous thing, I think. And I love, I've always enjoyed hearing Chris Eldridge sing, but Chris is also a very unadorned singer, mm -hmm. a very like, um, there's just a clarity and a simplicity, almost a naivety to the way he sings. And I don't mean that in any kind of bad way, but it's mm -hmm. such a, like an unadorned, unfussy approach. So they sing beautifully together. And when mm -hmm. Critter takes over and sings a couple, it feels totally natural as well. And um, for all the very, very fine award-winning banjo playing on that record, I also really enjoyed the singing. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, Critter, Critter sang beautifully on there. You know, the the that song "Love and Babe" is one of my favorite um, tracks on the record, and that's kind of the the only song that is considered the kind of you know. There, there's a little bit of a modern um, co-write. That's a, a co-write between uh, Uncle Dave Macon and. Kristen Andreasen, um, a co-write that Uncle Dave Macon is unaware of, um, <laughs> you know, in the grave. But but Kristen, who's a, a beautiful um, musician and singer-songwriter, she reinterpreted that song, and um, Critter brought that via Kristen. And that that song was was one of the more um, haunting moments in in the studio, and I, I feel like it got captured. That 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 mandolin intro on it uh andrew at the last second uh was like maybe i should uh you know we played it a couple times and he's like maybe i should try cross tuning uh for this where he adjusted the tuning of, of his mandolin and i was like um you've already done two takes we're pretty close like okay so, you know I, i'm just thinking this is my internal monologue of like okay so we're gonna um you know let's see how this is gonna go and he just kind of launched into this intro and it was one of those moments um, in the studio that um, I had to make sure that I didn't ruin a take just because of, you know, uh, how uh, um, just kind of, uh, I don't know, it's not that I was shocked to hear him play something like that, but it was like he pulled a rabbit out of a hat that he was just like, oh, maybe I should try cross tuning this. And I thought it was going to take, you know, an hour for him to sort out this thing. And I think he was just in the zone and, and inside this song that just within a take or two, he was playing this incredibly haunting mandolin intro that like no producer in the world could have like coaxed that out of somebody. You couldn't like, you can't describe in words, like, can you play, uh, can you do that? Like, that's just something that he found, you know, he found in his head and in his heart and, and, and played that. And 
the um you know the the pitfall and something like that is me just not you know not hearing me uh you know interject how excited i was to hear it like you know staying silent and playing and not forgetting that i'm holding an instrument as i'm witnessing something like that happen you know like i don't want to drop my banjo because i forget you know that i'm actually recording as well um that was that that really kind of stopped me in my tracks hearing something like that and then you know taking that to the next level like I had to respond to that. And so I think the record is filled, filled with that kind of interplay of somebody doing something that was maybe not expected because we, you know, we couldn't have a, you know, real expectations of what was going to happen because this is such a brand new um, ensemble. And so it's a, it can go either way, you know, a band that goes on the road for a month playing new material and just kind of test it in front of an audience. Um, that can do wonders um, for getting ready to record and you go and record and you're kind of, you have this experience um, confidence, you've refined something on the road, but that can also remove some of that um, uh, sense of exploration or um, experimentation um, from the process. And I, I think this record would have been patently different if we had booked a tour to test this material out Um and then went into the studio afterwards because, you know, as profound as that mandolin intro is on um, uh, Love and Babe or Alex's fiddling is on, you know, Grey Eagle and everything on the record. If I had the experience of hearing that every night, it wouldn't have lessened how great it was, but it would have lessened some of that uh, immediate kind of inspiration and surprise and responsibility to respond in the moment. And so I think the fact that a lot of that stuff happened just right then and there and never heard it before, like some of that stuff, it might even be the original take um, where Andrew cross tuned in that. So he did that and we had, hadn't heard anything like that and then had to continue playing and it shapes the entire rest of the, the moment of that recording. And in a way that just it couldn't have happened that way if a part like that had gotten, um, kind of codified as, you know, that's the intro and I've heard it 20 times now. Um, that that's the, um, I think one of the, the, um, it's, you know, one of the downsides of, of, of being on stage is you, you know, you have that experience of hearing the music live, you know, uh, for the first time once, when, when you get to hear the band playing that. And when you go on uh, on tour, um, the audience is having that experience every night, which is why that, uh, you know, there's no substitute for live performance in the room with the community of people who are there for the same reason, um, this communion, um, with, you know, via music. And I think that's uh, um, th that type of kind of... Uh, epiphany that an audience gets every night because it's it's their first time hearing that in a room we you know we have to sus suspend or extend so we have to sustain that same type of excitement um and revelation when we're on stage playing we can't you know it, it's that is a, a tricky thing um playing with uh, great musicians who perform at that level every night to, to not take for granted 
um, their artistry or their brilliance just because you, you may have heard, um, that happen, you know, 70, 70 other times this year in, in 70 other towns. And so that's something that's interesting about making a record this way is that we had, um, kind of that same experience and excitement as a listener at a concert, um, who would, had never heard, um, the material interpreted before we had that, um, with each other in front of the microphones for the first time. And how does that sort of translate forward? Obviously you are doing some gigs for this. Is this, does this feel like a bluegrass album band kind of project that will roll on to another record and sort of more? Have you not thought that far ahead yet? Um, no, we have, I, I think we, that's the plan. We, we, I think the, um, we chose this material and we assembled this group of guys because it seemed like this would be something that um, wouldn't just be a one-off kind of flash in a pan project that we like there, there, I think there's a, um, not like the world needs us. <laughs> the world doesn't need us, but we need this. We need um, this kind of uh, uh, project to put our energy into that we can um, revisit every two or three years. Um, I think it's something that's, uh, it keeps us grounded as musicians. And I think it um, will make us better musicians and better contributors to the other projects that we're in to have something like this, that is our, um, you know, kind of focused around uh, bluegrass music. I think it, um, it clarifies our identity as musicians. I, I think it, um, it, it, it's a reminder of kind of where we came from and what our marching our orders are going forward, whether within this project or with, um, uh, with other projects. And I think it, uh, it definitely kind of scratches the itch, um, that we all have to, to, to focus and play this music, which can be liberating in other contexts. Like you don't need to find that necessarily elsewhere. Um, and, um, if you have it here. And so I, I see that as, uh, <laughs> for us as, as players, not for listeners. <laughs> I'm just saying, or, but maybe I should be suggesting to other people that, you know, you don't, you don't need another bluegrass record now. As long as we do this every two or three years, you, you, you'll have a bluegrass record that should tide you over. Um, you don't need to listen to anybody else, just <laughs> Mighty Popper. <laughs> I mean, if it's going to take you three years to release each record, we might need something in between. Yeah. Well, hopefully, perhaps some other people will release some music as well. <laughs> And it's real quiet out there. You go online to see, you know, what's being released, and it's just a tumbleweed, the equivalent <laughs> of a tumbleweed. There's really, there's just, there's not much going on right now. Not many albums being released. Nothing, no, no place to consume music. No place to watch videos. It's just, you know, such a simple life out there. Just not no enough din, content no in din the world. Whatsoever. Yeah, not, <laughs> there's there's such a lack of content. That's my problem with the internet, is there's just such a lack of content. <laughs> You know what you want, but you just can't find it. Yeah. And has it been uh, has it been hard to kind of keep? Because obviously, since you recorded this, Alex has started playing with Billy Strings, who is potentially mm -hmm. the busiest human being on the face of the planet. Yeah, and that must have thrown a bit of a spanner in the works. Well, um, you know, I, I'm one. It's so awesome that that Alex is playing with Billy, and I, I went and saw them play here. Uh, at the Bridgestone Arena in Nashville about a month ago, um, where they played two nights at this uh, 20,000 seat arena. And it was just incredible. They killed it. They sounded amazing. 
Um, and Alex sounded incredible. Everybody was just playing so well and singing so well. And so, uh, I think, uh, I, I'm a big fan. I think they're, they're, they're doing amazing, uh, stuff and it's just undeniable. Like it, there's no surprise to me that it's, um, taking off and that, you know, millions of people are into it because it's, it's just, it's really compelling. Um, the, uh, when I, I think we, we made this record, uh, knowing that we, we hope to, to, for this to be a recurring thing and that we would find a chance to, to tour eventually, but there was no, um, uh, strict guidelines of how that was going to happen clearly because it took us almost two years to, um, finish the record, get it mixed and mastered and to take a photo, um, it, over two years to do those things. Um, and our photo shoot is literally like was thrown together backstage at the green mountain, uh, bluegrass and roots festival. We, that was this, the only time that all five of us had been in the same place since we recorded the record, um, nearly two years after the fact. And we said, Hey, let's go sit on this, um, uh, on these stairs here and take a, take a photo. And so, that that's how that all transpired. But, um, there was no, um, big time strategy or calendar plotting that was like, okay, so this is when we're going to do this. This is when the records come out, we're going to do two or here. And then we get this call from Alex, like guys, uh, um, I, I'm having to back out from, there was nothing to back out, um, from on mighty poplar because it was wide open how we were going to revisit this, how we were going to tour on this. And, um, and so it wasn't this, uh, um, letdown. I mean, it, it's, I, I, I love Alex's playing and, um, he's this, you know, he's the, his first right of refusal for any time we go on the road. Um, and he's working around Billy's schedule. He's, he's going to do some festivals with us, um, this year. Um, but we have the amazing John Mylander is going to be doing some of the touring in May and, and possibly in September, um, with us. And so, um, it, it didn't feel like this, uh, blow. It actually, it was, it was only, um, celebration when I heard that news. I was just so psyched for, for Alex to have that because this was always seen as a, um, part-time kind of reunion recurring project and we'll make it work around everybody's schedules. And obviously it threw a little bit of a wrench into the works, but there was no works <laughs> at that <laughs> point. Like when, when Alex, um, uh, told us this this was you know maybe a year and a half ago when he gave us the news of this we were still um mixing this record that could have <laughs> been released the day after it came out and so it didn't feel like our our plans were being sabotaged or anything like that it just felt like oh you know that's awesome go do that and you know eventually this record will come out and if you can't make a, a show or you know or can't do a tour it's not the end of the world we'll, we'll, we'll make it work so I think, it, you know, the, I've heard stories of bands, um, where people are really proprietary about their members, um, going and doing solo projects or being part of other collaborations. And that is just like a recipe for disaster. And, um, Chris Thiele, uh, in the early days of Punch Brothers made it very clear that like he wasn't proprietary about, um, what people did outside of the band, but made it very clear that like, the band was not going to be his only project and that he had all these other ideas and collaborations that he was going to pursue. And that he set expectations very realistically of, um, 
what people you know can and should be doing and and uh the amount of time they should be allotting for for different things and i think that was really healthy because the I think it could just become uh, suffocating to be stuck in a collaboration and feel like for whatever reasons, like you can't do anything else like that. You need to have those same five people there or the same three people there um, for every show and that you're not, you don't feel like you're empowered to go do something else. Um, I think punch brothers um, and I'm using it as reference just because it's the most longstanding collaboration I've been part of um, that band got better um you know progressively through the years we've gotten you know i think we've become a better band we've become better musicians and our music has become more three-dimensional um not just due to the um cumulative effect of being around each other but because of everybody going their separate ways um when the band hasn't been active to work on um their own music and to find their voices and to hone their um skills either as a instrumentalist or as a um, composer, um, or is a you know, producer or, or even engineer, you know, like the, the punch brothers is a better band now than it was, uh, you know, fa you know, rewind however many years because of, you know, what Paul has been doing in Hocktail because of what Gabe has, um, done in the studio with the million other projects. Um, just not, it's just not better because of what I've done. I can't, I can't really think of anything. Um, I, I mean, I can roast a chicken. Maybe, <laughs> maybe band is better because of that. Um, no, I, you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, yeah. I think there's this rising tide from people feeling empowered, um, and to be able to go do other things. And also just, it removes this, like, if people can, can pursue whatever music in different collaborations, then when you come back to Punch Brothers, there doesn't have, nobody has an agenda of being like, I really want to play um a bluegrass tune like i'm it can we can we put a bluegrass you know can we put a fiddle tune on this record um there's no nobody has an agenda because you can you could search for those outlets in other contexts and so when everybody comes back it's just like well let's just find you know wh where do we meet on this project and it can be you know uh i think it, it could be liberating in that sense yeah and it, i mean you know everything about this record that i've heard so far and everything the way I've heard each of you talk about it and the way it just sounds as I listen is it sounds like some people coming together and you brought it back at the beginning of all this you said it's not a you don't think of it as a pandemic record and so many of those pandemic records were ways people found to make music in weird circumstances and mm -hmm. this feels totally like a coming together of people which was the thing we couldn't do then and it feels like a bunch of energy brought together in a room that just sits and increases exponentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think the record would be much different if you remove the um, pandemic from it, from the context of it. I, but I do think it was heightened. <clears throat> there was a heightened excitement to get to play music with each other um, uh, because there had been this drought for you know seven months or so prior. But there, there, I think the real drought. Um, that kind of makes this record what it was is not the pandemic related shutdown uh, isolation. It's the fact that um, this music is something that we, we hold so dear and it's just been many years for each one of us uh, since we've gotten to, to play, play music bluegrass like this. And, and in some instances, the, the very first um, 
kind of official record I mean official first record that we've been able to focus around this. Um, and so that to me is still something I, I didn't think about. It's like, Oh, this is like this going back to my, uh, roots. This is the, has been the, the thing I've most connected to, um, throughout my life and career, but it's still the first time I've ever made a record like this. Like what, what took me so long? And so, um, it's uh it's a, it's a joy for me kind of from any angle i look at it and it's a joy to listen to um and it's been a joy chatting to you about it i've really enjoyed this i have only one question left and Likewise, that is why, yeah. why, why mighty poplar oh yeah um so we um went back and forth on what to call this project for nearly two years. I think that was another reason why we um, didn't feel any pressure to actually finish it because we couldn't decide on a name. Um, all we knew was that this needed to be a, um, we needed to have a name that this was not going to be the, you know, Marlon Pakelney, Eldridge Garrison, Hargraves, you know, uh, like a law firm. Um, we, we wanted there to be no um, question that this was kind of a legitimate project that was going to be happening again. And I think if we couldn't think of a name, nobody would think that we took this seriously enough that, uh, you know, it was a real thing. There was maybe just a thrown together pandemic record. They just got together because what else was there to do? It wasn't that. And so we wanted a name and bluegrass album band was taken. I suggested we call it the bluegrass ringtone band. Um, um, and that didn't, uh, Nobody liked that. We had a bunch of different names and then kind of at the 11th hour, Andrew pitched Mighty Poplar. Um, and he, uh, he latched onto it because Bill Monroe, um, on that, on a live recording with, with Doc Watson, uh, was introducing a song and he said, this song is Mighty Poplar. Um, or this song was Mighty Poplar and Andrew texted. I, I need, I can't remember what uh, song it was. I'm embarrassed to say, but I'll, I'll, I'll look it up and we re can re-record this entire podcast. Um, but uh, the, so Andrew, Andrew said, how about Mighty Poplar? And I, uh, and we all just kind of felt like, you know, that's, that, that's the name. Um, and if you don't like it, don't blame us, blame Bill Monroe and you know, see how you'll sleep at night. If you're going to sleep, Holding a grudge against Bill Monroe. Good luck. <laughs> this podcast sponsored by Ambien. <laughs> um, oh, brilliant. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collins Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.